Well, if you have your Bibles, open up now to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you're new with us, uh, we are just systematically working our way through uh, the book of Philippians, and we find ourselves this morning in Philippians 3. And let me begin with a little story. I'm going to take you back with me to high school. Um, I was a punk kid in high school. We'll start there. Did not know Christ. And really early on, I developed something um, known as uh, a disorder. It was a pretty serious disorder, maybe even life-threatening. But it wasn't my doctor that discovered it. It was actually my family and my friends who first identified this disorder in me. It was the know-it-all syndrome. I um, felt like I really knew it all. And my, uh, my report card which was like soaring at a 2.0, was a good indication that I didn't know it all. And a lot of foolish decisions I made was also evidence that I did not know it all. But I really believed that I knew better than everyone else. And I remember sitting in my algebra class one afternoon, and the syndrome just kicked in, just like, boom, it kicked in. Because I'm doing algebra, and I just thought, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? Why are we wasting so much time with all of this algebra? Is this even practical? And I actually said that out loud. And my teacher said, what was that? And I said, seriously, I mean, is this, is this really practical for real life? And I'll never forget his response. He said, look, studying math is as practical as it gets. How so? Well, in math, you're making value judgments. You always have a right and left column, one for pros, assets, one for cons, deficits, and he said this is going to be that way with everything in life, your time, your money, your future, your relationships, so you better know what's valuable and what's not. It will also help you determine right and wrong answers, and there are always right and wrong answers. And he said, so Dom, if you don't want to learn how to solve problems, how to make accurate value judgments, and you don't want to discover what is true from false, then just go ahead and drop the class. And at that point, like he just drops the mic there and embarrasses me in front of everybody. But he was absolutely right. Because my poor attitude, I didn't see the the practicality of it. But as we come to the Bible, nowhere is the ability to make value judgments to discern between right and wrong and comprehend what is true, nowhere is it more valuable than when it comes to our spiritual lives. The scriptures point constantly to an infinite treasure. And it's not something, it's someone. Jesus is the treasure that we discover in scripture, and he's a treasure that we must pursue with all of our hearts. He is a treasure that we can actually possess And I'm convinced that when we understand his unestimable worth, we will pattern our lives in such a way that we continue to gain a knowledge of this treasure. In our passage of Scripture this morning, we get a glimpse into the life of a man who understood the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Obviously, that man is the Apostle Paul, a man who was originally hostile to Christ hostile to his followers, but then when he met Christ on that Damascus road, everything changed because it was at that point that he saw Jesus for the supreme value that he truly was, and his whole outlook, his whole approach to life was transformed in that moment. You see, his life after conversion became a continual display of Jesus' infinite worth and value. He made Christ his life's ambition. Personally, intimately, what Paul wanted was just to know him. So let's take a look at Philippians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 8 to grab the context, but we'll focus in on this idea of knowing Christ, our infinite treasure. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, reads this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, 
If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I, far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. O Lord, would you please meet us here and help us to approach your word with humility and eagerness and excitement and a willingness to obey the truth that you have for us this morning. Spirit of God, we need your help to understand, to value, and to obey. So please help us to delight in you in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, uh, here's our main idea. Really, the section is uh, all the way to verse 11. But as we look here at Philippians 3, 4 through 11, Paul provides us with three evidences, three evidences that demonstrate that Jesus is supremely valuable. You know Jesus is supremely valuable when you regard your former gains as loss. We see that in verses 4 through 7. We know that he is supremely valuable when we renounce all gains as loss, there in verse 8. And then we'll look at next week when we resolve to know Christ at any cost. That's our outline. Regard your former gains as loss, renounce all gains as loss, and then resolve to know Christ at any cost. Again, looking at one and two today, and then we'll look at point number three next week. Now, you are familiar with the Apostle Paul and his conversion in Acts chapter 9. In Acts 9, we read about the details surrounding Christ calling Paul. But here in Philippians, we get this behind-the-scenes look at what was taking place internally, what was taking place in Paul's heart. And the hinge verse is right there in verse 7, where he says, but whatever things were gained to me, all of my former life, my, my past life, my past boast, all those things that used to be gained, he says, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And here what we see is what we call the great transaction. An exchange took place in Paul's heart and in his mind and his value system. And everything that he used to find his identity in, it's gone. And he gets rid of it with joy. He turns his back on everything so that he might possess Christ, which he says now is his greatest gain. But, but look there back at um, the first couple verses, just, just to help us set the stage as we try to get an idea of what Paul gave up and why he gave these things up. Remember there in verse 1, Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, this is Paul's main aim. He wants the church to, to not only recapture their joy, but to maintain, maintain their joy and guard their joy. The epistle really is about gospel joy in Christ. That's one of the themes. And so Paul, he's laboring to help the Philippians see that joy comes from knowing Christ. And so when you have Christ, you need to protect that truth of who he is and what he's done. Jesus is the reason. He is the cause for our joy. And that's why Paul can say, as he's sitting under house arrest, as he's in prison, and yet he's still the happiest guy around, the most joy-filled guy, because he knew that even despite his chains, he was free. He was no longer a slave to sin. He was no longer a prisoner of Satan because death had been defeated. And he understood that. He understood that he had a future resurrection, an untouchable hope, a future glory. And so even though he's under house arrest and with circumstances that don't seem so great, he is full of joy. And he commands the Philippians, who themselves are suffering and they're poor and afflicted, as it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He tells the church, but you can still rejoice because it doesn't depend on your circumstances. You can have joy 
sufficient joy, substantial joy, if it's placed in Christ and Christ alone. And so look what he says there. He says, to write the same things again, it's no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul wants to protect them from the spiritual danger of those who would come in and try to strip them of their joy. And he mentions this this group of people. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false mutilation. Now, Notice here three times that Paul says, beware. Beware, beware, beware. It's not a casual glance. No, it's blepo. Be on guard. Be on the lookout. Pay close attention. He's wanting them to pay attention to these Judaizers we discovered last week. Those Jews who said, yes, you must believe in Jesus, but in addition to believing in Jesus, you have to add something to your faith. You have to add circumcision. You have to add law-keeping. If you don't do that, then you really don't have Jesus. You don't have heaven secured for you. And so Paul says, no, we, we, we cannot allow these Gentile converts to fall into the trap of buying into this religious right to make you right with Christ. See, for Paul, this was a totally different gospel. And Paul says to the Galatians, if anyone comes to you preaching a gospel other than what I've preached, let them be anathema, accursed, because it's really no other gospel. It is a false gospel that ultimately will damn In verse 3, Paul makes the contrast. He says, For we, we are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. A strong contrast between those who are adding to Christ and those who are true worshipers. You see, Paul taught that those who come to Christ by faith, we don't need external ceremonial activities to be made right with God. You cannot merit salvation in that way. The truly circumcised, as the Bible describes it throughout the whole New Testament, is that it's an inward change, a circumcision of the heart. He doesn't say that any clearer than in Romans 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 28. Paul writes this in Romans 3, 28. He says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that faith, is one. You see, the believer's confidence should never, ever come from the outward, fleshly, external obedience that people demand you must have in order to be made right with Christ. Listen. If you add to Christ, you are actually subtracting from him. He's already supremely valuable. There's nothing that we can add to him. There's nothing we can improve upon him. And that is why Paul shares his testimony here. He wants to lay this out very clearly by talking about his own life and his own value system. And he's going to show us the total bankruptcy of all of his moral and religious achievements. All those things that used to be in the asset column have proved to be deficits. Trusting in his own self-righteousness that didn't bring him any closer to God. But millions of people think that because of their own self-righteousness, they are made right with God. They are close to God. But I would just say this, boasting in man-made righteousness actually undermines Christ Jesus, who is righteous. It was only when Paul regarded his former gains as loss that he began to demonstrate that Jesus truly is supremely valuable. And so that's our first point there. Look there in the text. You prove Christ is supremely valuable when you regard your former gains as loss. Paul writes, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He says, look, you want to boast, Judaizers? You want to make a big deal about all the stuff that you do? Well, what kind of confidence do you think I have? I mean, seriously, you're boasting in your circumcision? If anyone can boast 
It's me. If anyone could find acceptance with God simply by being religious, by being a good person, it would be me, Paul says. I mean, who is more sincere than Paul? Who is more passionate than Paul? You know, Martin Luther had a very similar misconception. Martin Luther said this. He said, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it would be I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and readings and other work. And here's the truth. As devout as Luther was, and some of you know his own testimony, Martin Luther was a lightweight compared to the Apostle Paul. No one during Paul's day, no one during our day, would come close to the Apostle. I mean, just look at his impeccable resume. It's all right here. He says, if anyone has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he goes on here to list all those things that were in the prophet column. And there's seven things that he outlines. These are specific self-righteous boasts that he made. These were things that he boasted about, things that he banked on, because he thought that it made him right with God. And so he begins with this here, his heredity. Circumcised the eighth day. He takes us back to the very beginning of his life. See, the Old Testament law commanded that Jewish boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. It's in the law. Now, babies obviously don't circumcise themselves, right? at least that I know of. It's the parents that do that. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, my obedience doesn't just start with me. No, my, my obedience comes even from my parents. They were faithful law keepers. They made sure that I was an eighth dayer. That's what it says literally. Uh, uh, he says, literally, an eighth dayer. Now, when you think about the Gentiles who were converted to Judaism, um, they're circumcised as an adult. Even Ishmael, who was circumcised, wasn't circumcised until age 13. But Isaac, oh, he was circumcised on the eighth day. And so what Paul says is, look, I'm truly from Abraham's blessed line. I am a child of the covenant. I'm not a proselyte. I'm a purebred. That's what he's saying. My obedience actually started with my parents. But that's not all. He's also boasting in his nationality. He says, I am of the nation of Israel. Literally, I am an Israelite by birth. And he was wrapped up in his ethnic identity, a pure blood from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. Paul says in Romans 9 that it was to Israel that belonged the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple services, and the promises. God gave Israel the prophets. Ultimately, God gave the Messiah. But he didn't know the Messiah. And he was boasting in his nationality. He thought that because he was from the nation of Israel, that he was acceptable in God's eyes. And he took great pride in that. But it wasn't just heredity and nationality. Look there again at the text. Paul put his confidence in his pedigree. His pedigree. The tribe of Benjamin. He's not only from the chosen people, Israel, but in addition to that, he could even trace his lineage to one of the two greatest tribes. He was a Benjamite. You remember the story back in Genesis? Jacob loved Rachel. Laban did the, the nasty swap. He had lots of kids. Finally, Rachel has Joseph. But what happens to Joseph? When brothers mistreat him, Salem come back and say, Dad, he was killed by a wild beast. He lost a son. But he had one more son from his beloved Rachel, and it was Benjamin. And when you read that story, you realize that Rachel died right before giving birth. But Benjamin was the only one born in the promised land. She called him Ben-Ani, son of my sorrow. But Jacob renamed him and called him Ben-Hamin, son of my right hand. And we see as we follow the narrative throughout the Old Testament that Benjamin was especially favored by God. We read about that in Deuteronomy 33. Benjamin and Judah were the only two tribes that remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty when the kingdom split between the north and the south. The first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul. 
And that might be even why they named Paul Saul. But during Paul's day, most Jews had no idea what tribe they were from. Converts weren't from any tribe. Paul says, I know exactly what tribe I came from. I know what my pedigree is. It comes all the way from Benjamin. His pedigree was nearly perfect. But he doesn't stop there. Look what else he says. He goes into his ethnicity. He says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a Mexican. Okay? But I'm not really like a Mexican of Mexicans. I know that every time that I go like to Vallarta and the Mexican markets, because I get there and I'll maybe order something in Spanish and do really good with ordering, but then when they start making conversation with me, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I'm sorry. My wife, who's fully Caucasian, speaks much better Spanish than I do. You see, many of the Judaizers, they were Hebrews, but they were Hellenized Hebrews. Hebrew by race, Greek by culture, but not Paul. Paul was a purebred. He, he was born to Hebrew parents. He spoke Hebrew. He, he could memorize the Scripture and speak the Scripture in Hebrew. And only a select few could claim the kind of racial and cultural purity that Paul possessed. And so Paul, what he does is he makes this appeal to his background, to his family heritage. And those things, honestly, he had no control over. He was just kind of born into that. But the next three boasts he gives are his own. Look at the text there. He says, you think my Jewish heritage is impressive? Check this out. What about my, my piety? As to the law, a Pharisee. Now, you know that there are two wings of religious leaders in Judaism. You have the Sadducees and you have the Pharisees. The Sadducees would be much like um, today's modern liberals, just don't really believe a whole lot of the Bible, don't believe the Old Testament, don't believe in miracles, um, don't believe in angels, don't believe in the resurrection. That's why to help kids understand the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees, we say they were sad, you see. They, they, they didn't believe in resurrection. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the hyper-conservative religious group. They were vehemently committed to the Old Testament law. And so when Paul says here, as to the law, he's saying that when it came to the laws of Judaism, I kept everything meticulously. I did it religiously. I did it rigorously. I did it rigidly. I kept the law. Paul, he would have prayed numerous times a day, fasted, tithed. Jesus goes so far in Matthew chapter 23 as it says that the Pharisees were even tithing on their spice rack. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. But the interesting thing as we look at Paul is he stood out among all of the Pharisees. When he gives his testimony before King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says this, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So if the Pharisees were the hyper-conservatives, Paul would have been the, the hyperist of the conservatives. And it was this way, he says, from my youth up, Judah just turned six. And we, we celebrated with him this week. Well, Paul at age six would have already been memorizing large portions of the Jewish scripture. At age 10, he would have already memorized um, large chunks of the oral law. At 13, he would have become a son of the commandment, a full-fledged member of the adult community where he has an obligation to obey all the commands. At 15, teenagers, he would have been studying rigorously at the synagogue. All of the Talmudic writings he would have been memorizing. And then a short time after that, he would have basically just went off to Jerusalem to study in rabbinical school. And we know from the book of Acts that he had the highest education. And he had the greatest scholar in Gamaliel giving him oversight as his mentor. Listen to Paul's own testimony as he gives it in Galatians chapter 1. He says this in verse 14. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among many of my countrymen. And he says this, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And that brings us to the next point, because Paul says, look, when it came to intensity, no one could outmatch me. He says in verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. 
Now you realize what that zeal manifested itself with. Paul, it says in the book of Acts, was breathing out threats. He was breathing out murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he backed up all those threats with beatings and imprisonments, and he was violently committed to wiping out Christianity. You follow Christ, I'm going to find you, I'm going to hunt you down, I'm going to arrest you, I'm going to beat you up, we're going to imprison you, and hopefully, like Stephen, we get to stone you. His own testimony before the Jews in Acts 22, he says, I was zealous for God, and I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women into prison to be punished, he says. And think about that. For all that zeal, for all that sincerity, for all that devotion, the guy was lost. He was lost because he didn't have Jesus. Paul not only banked on his heredity, his nationality, his pedigree, his ethnicity, his piety, and his intensity, but he also put all of his stock in morality. And you say, where's, where's the landscape today? It's right here. People banking on their morality to be made right with God. He says this, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. The Old Testament had 613 commandments. Paul has the audacity here to say when it comes to that and the oral law, people looked at my life blameless, squeegee clean. I kept it. I earned it. Everyone who observes my manner of life would conclude that I was faultless when it came to rule keeping. This is how decorated his pharisaicalism actually was in his mind. Everything he did in life was ordered around law-keeping. He invested his entire life to trying to keep the Torah. But listen, all of that effort, all of that discipline, all of that investment, it didn't bring him closer to God. In fact, it separated him further and further and further. Now, you might not have a, a resume like this, but make no mistake, you have a resume. All of us do. If you were a Christian, you were banking on something else to make you right with God. You were trusting in something else. And the reality is there might be some here this morning who still have this misplaced confidence you are depending on something else to make you right with God. And the Lord brought you here so that you can hear that there is nothing that will justify you, nothing that will save you, nothing that will get you into heaven apart from Jesus Christ. You might have had a godly heritage. And you say, well, I, I've always been a Christian. Well, that's not true. You weren't always a Christian. But as far as you know, you grew up in a home you might even have parents and grandparents. You might be a third or fourth generation Christian. And for that, praise the Lord. But you cannot earn Christ that way. Children, if you are in here, you look up at mommy and daddy, you cannot be saved by mommy and daddy. I don't care how godly they are. Their salvation does not automatically transfer to you. There are some who genuinely believe that we are one nation under God quote-unquote, that God is just somehow obligated to shower his blessings on us because we are a Christian nation. America is not a Christian nation. We started off great. Our country was founded on Christian principles, but there is no corporate salvation. So all America doesn't get saved. All of Israel doesn't get saved. There is no country that just gets saved. America cannot save you any more than Babylon can save you. Our hope is not in our country. If your confidence is in your country and you're banking on that, you will be condemned. For others, their hope is in their pedigree. Maybe it's a denomination. I'm a Baptist. I'm a fundamental Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a non-denom. All kinds of things we can say. 
I hear this frequently from people who check the box off when they're filling out forms that they're a Christian and they think that maybe checking off a box is good enough. There's no denomination in heaven. You don't get into heaven by checking off a box. Your entrance into heaven is based on your salvation that came by way of grace through faith in Christ alone. Not some confirmation, not some creeds, not some congregational affiliation. Others might put their confidence in the fact that they have a knowledge of the Bible. Some of you in here, uh, you have great Bible education. I know some of you went to the Master's University and you, stu- you studied. You have a MacArthur Study Bible. You've got uh, all these great resources. Um, you can know a lot about the Bible. You can study the Bible. You can regurgitate the Bible. You can know all this theology. But that does not make you right with God. We know that we can't know God apart from the Bible. But you can know the Bible and not truly know God. And that is terrifying. That's exactly where Paul was. He knew it, like the back of his hand. Memorized it, can sing it in Hebrew. And yet he did not know the Christ, the God of the Bible. Still others, they boast in their piety. Maybe you are doing a good job of being unstained by the world. Your motto is, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with the girls that do. You've never said a cuss word. You're really good at euphemisms. You don't listen to secular music. You don't watch R-rated movies unless it's The Passion of Christ. (laughs) But everyone looks at you and says, wow, look, what a saint. Confidence in religion displaces dependence upon God's grace. If you're trusting in your religion rather than an authentic, genuine, vibrant, loving relationship with God, you have a misplaced confidence. I see this almost every day on social media. And it breaks my heart because these are friends and family members who someone in the family dies, someone passes away, and it's just automatically assumed that this was a good person. And so heaven opened up its arms to Abolita or my Theo or my cousin or my friend And God is obligated just to let you in because based on our standards, this was a good person. It's just not true. It's not true. You can faithfully read your Bible in a year. You can memorize all of Philippians. You can share the gospel with your neighbors. Hey, and praise God for that. But you cannot earn salvation that way. The requirement to be made right with God is, listen, Perfect righteousness. And none of us in here are perfect. If you ever think somehow, some way that you've nailed it, there was no point of nailing Jesus to the cross. If you say somehow, some way, I can hopefully get into heaven by my good works, then what you've said is, God, you didn't have to send Jesus. He didn't have to leave heaven to come down here and live a perfect life and die for my sins. Do you see how objectionable that is for anyone to say that they can get to heaven by their own works? And this was the Apostle Paul. Sincere, but sincerely wrong. Devout, but deceived. He was a man of deep conviction, a stalwart of the Scriptures, and yet he was led astray by his own works-based righteousness. So the question to you is, What are you boasting in? What are you trusting in? If you're not boasting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation and for right standing with God, you have the wrong boast. And you say, Dom, you're you're preaching to the choir. This is the church. We know this. My encouragement to you is that you have family and friends who need to hear this. Don't be bashful. Don't be ashamed. Don't be scared. Tell them the truth. It is Christ and Christ alone. Some people just feel like, well, I've got everything I need. I have this joy that you Christians are talking about. I got a family. I got a house. I got my health. I mean, I have a good life. 
But oftentimes, it's those good things that keep you from the best thing, which is Christ. The sobering thing is that by the time I'm done with this message, listen to this, 7,425 souls will come face to face with their creator. 7,425. That's how many people die in an hour. 65 million people die each year. Break it down by the minute, 120 people die every single minute. What are they going to say? Please, God, let me into heaven. I am a good person. Look, just hoping, just wishing, wish, wishful thinking is not going to do it. The only entrance into glory for all of eternity is the precious blood of Christ. He is our only claim. The gospel is not, I said this last week, it's not doing your best. The gospel is not about giving your best effort or having the greatest intentions. The gospel is something much greater than that. The gospel is all of your greatest efforts will never be good enough. You need Christ's righteousness. Your credentials won't earn you approval. It is only Christ that is the acceptable currency in heaven. And that's why Paul makes this sharp turn in verse 7. Look there. He says, But, strong contrast, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, in contrast to all the religious achievements and man-centered accolades, in contrast to all of his self-righteousness, Paul discovered that the supreme treasure has always been Jesus. We prove that Christ is supremely valuable when we regard all of our former gains, all of our former boasts, our heredity, nobility, pedigree, piety, intensity, morality, all of that religious moral achievement is lost. And secondly, we prove Christ is supremely valuable when we regard all things as loss. All of our former gains. That's point two, renounce all gains as loss. Look at verse eight. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Three times here in verses 7 and 8, Paul uses this word count, count, count. That Greek word count just means to reckon, and it's a business accounting term. So all of you math geeks, like you're going to love that Paul switches this flip on, flips the switch on, and directs his attention to accounting. And what he says here is that there is a clear loss column and a profit column. In the Greek, the word for gain is actually in the plural that long old list of assets, his spiritual assets, he says, has become loss. Singular. He's totaled them all up, all of his past advantages in Judaism, all of his family heritage, and he says, rather than being a prophet, it's actually a liability. This is actually condemning me. This is actually separating me from Christ. What I once was proud of is actually condemning me. Everything in his life that he once tried, he tried to have by him was bankrupting him. All those former gains. And look at verse 8. Your translation might say, indeed. He says, indeed, I count all things to be loss. But that word there, indeed, it's not the greatest translation. Because what's happening here is Paul is telling his own personal testimony. He's bursting forth. It's almost like he can't contain himself. There's five particles here all smashed together. Literally, it says, not only this, but even more. He's trying to make the strongest point he possibly can and saying, look, way, 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 way beyond anything that I counted gain. It doesn't come close to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And listen, if you're sitting here as a Christian, this is your testimony. Because at some point, you had to do the mental calculations. You had to make the value judgments. Christ makes the call, come and die to self. 
follow after me. And you have to say, hmm, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Well, look at what Paul does here. As he moves from 3.7 to 3.8, he, he, he basically gives us three new um, interesting facts. First, he changed the tense of the verb count from the present tense. He said, this is something that I counted as loss. And he moves it into the present tense. And he says, I continually, right now, presently, am still regarding those things as loss, which means that his heart doesn't gravitate to those things. He's not justified by faith and made new in the spirit and want to go back to just law keeping. It's something that's happening in the present. Secondly, not only did he put the Jewish advantages he listed in five and six in the loss category, but he gathers up everything else, all things, and says that those things are also loss. You see, when Christ entered his life, he had to take complete and a comprehensive inventory of his life. All his accolades amounted to nothing, but it wasn't just his religious accolades. I don't know how often you think about this, but what, what do you think Paul lost when he started following Christ? I mean, Paul had a reputation. He had a family. You know, some people thought that Paul was actually married. Paul had to come home and say, hey, I'm on the road to Damascus. Jesus transformed my life. Some think that his wife left him. Well, that's speculation. Because we know that he's single, but was he always single? Think about all that Paul lost. He had teaching positions. He had reputation he was taken care of. He was probably financially stable. He had honor. He had safety. He had security. All of that gone. All of it. I'm sure he lost his friends. He lost his freedom multiple times. And as he has pen to the parchment, as he's writing this letter, he's in prison. And he might even lose his life. So when Paul says, I've regarded all these things as loss, he's saying it is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. He willingly, joyfully gave up everything because Jesus was infinitely more valuable than anything that he possessed. Look at the second part of verse 8. He says, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and now I count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ. And when he says, I have suffered the loss of all things, he's not saying that he did this reluctantly or begrudgingly. Um, my boys and I, we watched um, Lord of the Rings. It wasn't a marathon, but we, we watched it for the, the first time for them. It was really exciting. And there's that scene at the end of Return of the King, where uh, you've been waiting, you've been watching three movies here. Come on, Frodo, throw that stupid ring in the fire. And he goes up there, and he's got it. And he's holding it over the fire, and all he's got to do is drop it. Just get rid of it. But he doesn't, because it's precious to him. And it is a great picture of our own sin and our own self-righteousness. You have to let go of what you're holding on to to embrace Christ's gift. And Frodo doesn't want to do it. Paul was holding on to these things that he thought made him right with God. But he had to let it go. It's easy to let that go when you understand what's offered to you over here. That this is infinitely better. Forgiveness of all of your sins. Peace with God. An eternal home. No more suffering, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more heartache, no more separation, no more death. Why would you want to hold on to something so temporal and satisfying for a moment? No, Paul wasn't reluctant. He suffered the loss of all things, and it says that he counted them as rubbish. And we're not going to dissect that word scubalon very much, but, but know this. It is a strong word. It's almost vulgar. And it's deliberate by the Spirit. The Spirit of God wants us to know how worthless a life apart from Christ is. You know what God thinks of your righteousness? He says in Isaiah 64, 6, our righteousness is like what? Filthy, polluted rags. You can have, listen, you can have the bread of life. 
that will satisfy. You could have the fountain of living water that will never make you thirst, or you can trade it for a bunch of... Which do you prefer? Dung? The dung of self-righteousness? Or the eternal joy of knowing Christ as your Savior and Lord? Now that Paul realizes the true value of Christ, he regards everything else as worthless. It is all dung. He renounces his rights to everything that he is and everything he has because the knowledge of Christ is of surpassing value. And that word just means it's infinitely better. It's overwhelmingly better. It can be overvalued. There's nothing that can compete with the worth of Christ. We finally realize that whatever we considered gain, it really wasn't gain at all. I remember that day when I was 20 years old. I was just looking forward to turning 21 so I can actually start buying beer legally. I was buying beer. I was doing it illegally. But I was like, man, I can finally go into the store and get it myself. But I remember Christ met me and humbled me and showed me my sin and showed me my need to repent. And I had to sit down and make that calculation. And I had the prophets and the lost column. And over here, it wasn't religion, but it was certainly popularity. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be respected. I wanted to be a great athlete. I wanted all these things, all these things that I found my significance in. And it was my sin that I didn't want to let go of. But when Christ encountered me and called me and caused me to repent, It was a done deal. All of that junk I threw away, literally. I got two big black hefty bags in my room and I went to my closet where all my sin was, literally and figuratively, and I got all the pornography and all of my paraphernalia and all of my drugs and all of my music that was God dishonoring. I put it all in trash bags. My mom's kind of looking at me like, what are you doing? Are you doing spring cleaning? No, I'm getting rid of all the things that kept me from Christ for so long. All of this trash, all of this junk. Spurgeon said of Paul in this verse, he said, Paul speaks of Christ here as though he felt that Christ was the very climax of his desire, the summit of his ambition, If he might but get Christ, he would be perfectly satisfied. But if he would not get him, whatever else he might have, he would still remain unblessed. For the first time, I experienced that, that he is truly my all in all. And I'll take him, and if I have nothing else, I have everything. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 16, what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world, but what? Forfeits his soul. We know someone that did that. It was the rich young ruler. Here he's got Christ in front of him. The greatest treasure. The most precious reality in all the universe. And he was clinging to his little treasures. His temporal, decaying, moth-eaten treasures. That was a devastating miscalculation. He turned his back on him. He walked away sad. And who knows what the story is. Maybe he came to repent, but maybe he didn't. And he's forever suffering in hell. Clinging to our possessions, church. Clinging to our comforts. Clinging to those things that you think give you significance. They don't make Christ look supremely valuable. So for a watching and needy world, if they're observing us and we're in love with the world and things of the world... We're not showing Christ off for what he truly is, which is extremely valuable. That's the whole point of those parables in Matthew 13. Two men, one stumbles upon a treasure. He goes and sells all he has to get that treasure. Another one is looking for that precious pearl. And when he finally finds it, he sells all that he has to obtain it. Listen, church, the point of those parables is clear. Jesus is of infinite value. He is the treasure. He is the pearl. He is worth us giving up everything and counting everything as rubbish for the sake of not just knowing him, but possessing him. 
to have that relationship, to have that intimacy, to have that communion. You do not have to travel to Israel at the Western Wall. Some people make this joke. They say, you know why people go to the Western Wall to, to make their prayers? Because the reception is a lot better there. That is not true. Anywhere you are, at any time, because you have been adopted into God's family, you have access with a living God. Let me leave you with one more quote from Charles Spurgeon. He writes this, Paul does not say that those he counted lost for Christianity or for the church or for the Orthodox faith, there would have been truth in such a statement, but the center of the truth lies here. He counted these things lost for Christ, that is for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He thought of that divine one, Blessed be his name, that brother of our souls who was born at Bethlehem, the kinsman redeemer of his people, Christ, the living, loving, bleeding, dying, buried, risen, ascended, glorified Christ. This was the glorious person whom he placed on the other side of the balance sheet. Look, Christians, I want you to get an A++ when it comes to spiritual arithmetic. You have Christ. And if you have nothing else, you have all you need. Let's pray. Father, this is a timely word for us. When we're living in a world that refuses to bow the knee, and takes every pleasure and delight and everything but Christ, Lord, we need to be reminded as your church of his infinite worth, that he is supremely valuable. And Father, we thank you that you've opened up our eyes, that you have brought about the circumcision of the heart, that you've given us the faith to see that Christ is supremely valuable. Lord, those of us who believe, we've had to give up a lot, whether that's reputation, whether that's trust in our religiosity. But Father, we confess that it was worth it, so worth it, and it continues to be worth it. And it will be worth it tomorrow and the day after and the day after. So Lord, please help us to always view things clearly. To be able to weigh and measure things appropriately. To see Christ's infinite worth. That he is our most glorious gain. Oh Lord, grow our love for you, our desire to know you, to walk with you to be near to you. Remind us that you are our greatest joy. May that be true of each of us. And Father, maybe for those in here today who don't know you, who have not surrendered, who have not bowed the knee to your Lordship, I pray that you would take this word, press it deep down in their hearts, help them to understand that there is nothing that they can do to earn their favor with you, but they must come empty, broken, poor, naked, and desperate, and you will come, and you will give them life, and it will be eternal life, and the most enjoyable life, both now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.